We are so excited to present to you the Albany Whole Lawyer Project, which highlights Asian American attorneys and leaders throughout the nation and their human stories behind their success. I am your host, Jane Chong, and today I am happy to introduce David Lat, the founding editor of Above the Law, a writer, a speaker, and legal recruiter at Lateral Link. Hope you guys enjoy. David, thanks so much for being here. You have a very storied career, an author, a lawyer, a writer, legal recruiter, COVID survivor, like all these <laughs> things. I would love to hear every single part of that story. Why don't we start from your childhood and talk about where you grew up, some of the major influences in your life and what started this journey for you? Sure. Uh, so my childhood was not terribly eventful. Uh, I was born in New York mm -hmm. and grew up in the suburbs in New Jersey. My parents are uh, doctors, immigrants mm -hmm. from the Philippines who came to the U.S. in the 1970s. Uh, I had a very typical suburban upbringing, fairly happy. I think I was very academically focused. Again, uh, not to overgeneralize or indulge in stereotypes, but Many Asian Americans can relate, I think. I, I went to high school at Regis uh, High School in New York, which is mm -hmm. an all boys school run by the Jesuits. Then I went to college at Harvard, and then I was at Yale for law school. And you went straight through from college to law school. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I actually think it's a good idea to do something in between college and law school. I mm -hmm. think that people who have done something, whether uh, other study, whether a job, I think they often appreciate law school a little bit more compared to those of us who go straight through. Oh, definitely. I took four years in between college and law school. My first job out was in, on Wall Street and 1L was tough, but I was really just happy to take a break from paying yep. my own rent <laughs> and all the, on all the exactly. adult stuff that we have to do. You um, tend to appreciate it more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How did you know you wanted to be an attorney then? Actually, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit, I didn't really have a good sense of why I wanted to go to law school. As I mentioned, my parents were doctors. I didn't really know lawyers here in the U.S. I certainly had relatives who were lawyers in the Philippines, but of course, it's a totally different experience. Right. And for me, I was active in the newspaper in college and on the debate team, and I liked writing. I liked arguing. Many of the people I knew through these activities were going to law school, so I thought, okay, hey, why not? And mm -hmm. my parents uh, had very much an immigrant mentality of more education being good. I think they viewed a bachelor's as just the basic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. So I said, I okay, you. fine. And back then law school was a lot less expensive than it is today. And I also thought it's true that you can do many different things with a law degree. It seemed like a good way to keep my options open. But to tell you the truth, I really didn't have a good idea of what lawyers uh, did and mm -hmm. therefore why I went to law school. Why don't you talk about what you did right after law school? So my first job out of law school, uh, I clerked for a federal judge, for Judge mm -hmm. O'Scanlan on the Ninth Circuit. And that was an amazing job for people who are interested in litigation. I strongly recommend uh, the clerkship experience. Mm -hmm. You just learn so much about what persuades judges. You see the process from that side of the bench. Often your judge goes on to become a great mentor, as Judge O'Scanlan did for me. You make friends in terms of your co-clerks. It's a really great experience. Mm -hmm. uh, after that, I worked at Wachtell Lipton, uh, mm -hmm. a law firm in New York, for uh, two and a half, three years. 
I was doing litigation there. A lot of their litigation relates to their transactional practice, especially their M&A work. And then after that, I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey, being the state where I grew up. I had worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office after my 1L year of law school, and I loved the experience. And I had long thought I might go back. And so after acquiring a couple of years of experience, most U.S. Attorney's Offices don't hire people straight out of law school or straight out of a clerkship. I decided to apply and, and got the job. Got it. And when you first take a step back at your clerkship, your law firm experience, and now at the district attorney's office, did you always know you wanted to be a litigator versus a corporate attorney? So that's interesting. I, that was something I figured out. When I was at Wachtell, I did a corporate rotation. I also did a litigation rotation and a bankruptcy rotation. And I just enjoyed the litigation much more. It just mm -hmm. clicked for me. I've always enjoyed writing. And of course, litigation is very heavy on that. Yeah. I've enjoyed arguing. I did debate in high school and college. So it seemed like a very natural fit. I wonder if maybe I should have given corporate or transactional practice more of a try, aside from just a couple weeks rotation. Right. I've, As a recruiter now, I often tell people that there are advantages to corporate practice. You just have many more options, I think, if you decide to leave a law firm compared to litigators. Mm. So, so there are a lot of pluses to being a transactional attorney, but I did not explore it in great depth. Did you think back then that you would be a litigator forever? So I did enjoy uh, my time as a litigator. I, I found it fulfilling. I, I found it challenging. I found mm -hmm. it interesting. Uh, so I did like it. And I yeah. quite possibly would have spent the rest of my career doing that. I think part of me also did harbor interest in maybe someday becoming a judge. I had thought that my clerkship was such a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. But if if other things hadn't presented themselves, I probably would still be a, a lawyer uh, today. Like what? For me, it was how I stumbled into writing and, and mm -hmm. blogging when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And why don't you talk um, about that? Because that part is really fascinating for me. <laughs> what was your vision of it at the time? So when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I started my first blog, which was a precursor to Above the Law called Underneath mm -hmm. Their Robes. Mm -hmm. And it was an anonymous blog about gossip and humor related to the federal judiciary. Mm -hmm. So I started this just on a lark. I thought it would be fun to do some writing that didn't involve blue book citation. Yeah. I just wanted to keep my writing muscles exercised. I had always been interested in the judiciary going back to law school and certainly mm -hmm. for my clerkship. So I decided to write about judges, but I wasn't writing about their uh, opinions or their jurisprudence. I was writing about their, you know, personal sides, who's the really nice. Side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The human side. What the, like, really fun, silly stuff. How do they treat their clerks or what do they like to do as hobbies? And I interviewed a couple of judges and mm -hmm. I wrote really, it was like a people magazine, but for judges right. uh, or about judges. <laughs> so I did that anonymously for a little while. And then Eventually, I decided to reveal my identity in an interview with The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. And part of that was because I wasn't able to fully take advantage of the traction that the blog had been getting. It had a, you know, it had a small but loyal readership. But when you're writing under a pseudonym, there's only so much you can do. So I did reveal myself as the author of the site. There was a bit of controversy because occasionally the site could be irreverent or snarky. Right. And of course... By day, I was working as a federal prosecutor, and by night, I was writing these mildly irreverent things about <laughs> judges, but it all was okay in the end. My boss at the time, the U.S. attorney, was mm -hmm. Chris Christie, who went on to become the governor of New Jersey, okay. and he was actually surprisingly tolerant of it in the end. Mm -hmm. When this came out, I put the blog behind a password, and I 
met with Chris and I offered even to resign if that's what he wanted. But he said, look, you're doing good work as a prosecutor and you've essentially shut down the blog. So let's just go back to the way things were. So mm -hmm. we did go back to the way things were for a while, but I found that I really missed the writing and the blogging. So eventually I left the US Attorney's Office. I moved down to Washington DC to work at a political blog called Wonkette. That's also fascinating. It must have been very scary for you to first come forth, writing behind the pseudonym to putting your name out there. So that was a pretty scary time. And I think that was a big turning point for me when I decided I would reveal myself because I knew it was going to have implications in some respects for my career. Although I really hadn't, again, thought it through terribly well. And I hadn't mm -hmm. thought about how it could cause perhaps some controversy. But I should mm -hmm. mention one other thing. I also decided to go public partly because I was afraid of being revealed anyway, because oh. I was an English major in college. I didn't know mm -hmm. much about technology. I didn't know about IP addresses and metadata. And when I was emailing from my blog account at Underneath Their Robes, and I would also be at the same computing session emailing as David Latt, I was inadvertently giving away my identity to anyone who did know about IP addresses and mm. metadata. You can open up the headers on an email and basically see the IP address, the four-digit identifier for that computing session. And right. so people who had emails from both David Latt and my alter ego, I called myself Article 3 groupie, Article 3 being <laughs> part of the constitution that establishes the judiciary. That's people who had emails cute. from both David Latt and Article 3 groupie could figure out right. that maybe we were one and the same. So one of the reasons I decided to speak to the New Yorker was because I was afraid that what if somebody just reveals me anyway? I, and I thought it would be a better way to go out in the pages of the New Yorker with a positive article as opposed to just being revealed by somebody else. And how did your friends and family react to that? So I think it was a little bit challenging for my parents at first because I see. practicing law is a high status occupation. There's that old joke, uh, Asian American parents recognize three jobs doctor, lawyer, and failure. And I was basically going from lawyer to failure because writing, creative pursuit, it was a little bit more unorthodox. So I think that was a little bit challenging for them. I had to explain why I was doing this and why I, I thought it would be fulfilling. I remember I was at my parents and I went out to a, a Thai restaurant and I was telling them about this decision mm -hmm. and they seemed a little puzzled when I said, to them, I'm really excited about this new opportunity and I want you to yeah. be proud of me. Mm -hmm. And my dad said, don't worry, we were proud of you. <laughs> and I think what he meant by that was, oh, you've accomplished so much already, right, right. We're proud of you. But I thought you were proud of me, past yeah. tense. Like yeah. it just, it was exactly, it, it, that's one thing for anyone who thinks about leaving the law for another profession. Mm -hmm. You often have to have confidence in what you're doing because despite right. all the lawyer jokes, law is still a, a prestigious and, and lucrative occupation. And mm -hmm. many things that you might do besides practicing law will not be as prestigious or as profitable in financial terms. And so mm -hmm. that uh, can be difficult for many people thinking of doing something else. And how did you develop that kind of confidence and self-assuredness? Because I speak to you now and I could just tell that you're very confident in the decisions that you've made and I don't know if it's something that comes with self-development over the years. How are you so sure that this was the path for you? I think that over time, you just know yourself better and you do develop more self-confidence. I was very anxious as a kid and even as a law student and, and young lawyer. And over time, you just become more comfortable in your own skin. For me, I think what 
enabled me to feel comfortable going down this other path was underneath the robes had developed a readership. Uh, I did have a couple thousand dedicated readers, including judges and even some Supreme Court justices. So I felt that I was able to make something, to produce something that people wanted to read. And mm. so when I started Above the Law, I thought to myself, in some ways, I want to repeat what I did at Underneath Their Robes, but going beyond the judiciary to talk about law firms and law schools as well. Got it. It sounds like you really tapped into this desire for people to get to know the human side of things and get to know what kind of binds us all, no matter what profession we're in. And it sounds like you transfer that confidence in launching above the law here. What was it like launching above the law? So I actually was maybe pleasantly surprised by how well it was received or how it developed an audience. Uh, remember, this was 2006. And so in some ways, there was less competition for eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Social media wasn't really the force that it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of other publications didn't have online uh, presences. So to start a publication in 2006 was a pretty good thing. I often think to myself that Above the Law isn't necessarily better than a lot of other publications, but I think we just were on the scene earlier and there is a first mover advantage. And so I think that we did pick up traffic and traction uh, pretty quickly. One thing that helped was there was a lot of news for us to cover. So in 2007, a few months after we started, there was a big pay raise that reverberated throughout the legal profession. Mm -hmm. And so we covered that pay raise. I think that round was led by Simpson Thatcher and we covered that. And Mm -hmm. people wanted to know which firms and which cities were raising. And so that was something that we really stayed on top of, I think Mm -hmm. more so than many other news organizations. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, when the great recession happened in 2008, 2009, 2010, we were there to cover all of that as well. And that was more depressing news, salary freezes, salary cuts, layoffs, law firm dissolutions. But again, during those times of turbulence and uncertainty, people have a real hunger for information and knowledge. And that's what I think we were trying to provide. How did you gather all your sources in such a quick and efficient way that Above the Law did become a very trusted source of information? Initially, it was a lot of my personal network, people I knew from college or law school Mm -hmm. or past jobs. But one thing that's nice about a publication is once you develop a readership, the readers are often happy to help you out with information. So once you have readers at different law firms, they'll send you the law firm's bonus memo, or Mm -hmm. they'll tell you about who just got hired as a Supreme Court clerk, or they'll tell you about how these partners are looking to make a move. And so once you have a certain audience, that audience also becomes your your source of information. And mm-hmm. I think as Above the Law grew, you we entered this virtuous cycle in a way where the more readers we had, the more sources we had, the sources gave us information, the more information we had, the more readers we had. And so it just right. kept building on itself. And also at a certain point, the law firms and law schools started to be, to be willing to talk to us. When we first came on the scene, it was very hard to get comment from them on any story. But once they saw that we were around and we weren't going away and we had a large audience, mm-hmm. they also tended to be more cooperative in telling their side of the story. Of course. And what was the journey like for you growing above the law? What were some of the toughest parts of that journey, for instance? So I think certainly the business aspects were tough. I was really focused on the editorial side. Uh Uh, I launched the site on behalf of a company now called Breaking Media, in which 
I and a few other people have equity. Uh, so I didn't focus too much on the business side, but the business side inevitably comes into play just because you're trying to figure out, look, are we making any money? Am I going to be able to keep doing this as a job? And for the first two years, we didn't really have much in the way of revenue. And so it took a while for Above the Law to become a viable business. And there were times where we thought, oh gosh, I hope we can keep doing this because investors want to make money. And if the enterprise doesn't have any promise of being profitable, then you know, at a certain point, you could run into trouble. So I think that was one challenge. Another challenge, one challenge also is just this is less a challenge for the, the website, more of a personal issue. As Above the Law grew larger, mm-hmm. I found myself doing less of the writing, which is what I really enjoyed, and doing more editing, more administrative stuff, and getting mm-hmm. more involved in the business side, and putting out fires, and dealing with controversies. And uh, I found I missed the writing. And so mm-hmm. that was one thing that was personally challenging for me. Got it. Around when did you decide that was time to move on to a next chapter? In 2019, I decided I wanted a new challenge. And Mm. that's when I entered the world of legal recruiting and joined the company that I work with, Lateral Link, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a company I'd worked with for a long time at Above the Law because Lateral Link was actually Above the Law's first advertiser. Yeah, a legal recruiting company started by a few Harvard Law School graduates. They wanted to reach the audience that we had of associates at top firms. And so it was a very natural fit in terms of platform and advertiser. And I really liked and trusted them. And so when I thought about going into recruiting, which seemed like a good way to deploy my knowledge and context of the legal profession, uh, Lateral Link was pretty high on my list in terms of places to go. Uh, the other thing I should mention is I have started to get back into writing more. Just a few weeks ago, I launched a new newsletter and uh, website through this platform called Substack. My new publication is called Original Jurisdiction, named after the technical legal term, but I also call it that because I'm trying to offer original takes on law and the legal profession. And in some ways with this new newsletter website, I'm returning to basics. I'm the only writer. I don't take any guest posts. I don't have any other colleagues. I don't have any ads. It's just me sharing my thoughts with the world. And so in some ways I've come full circle and I'm back to doing really what got me into this, which is the writing. The writing, right. You mentioned that in 2019, you decided to pivot yet again to a different part of your new career. Did something happen in 2019? What brought on that hunger for change? In 2017, my husband and I had our son. And I think Mm -hmm. that did, you know, change my perspective on things. I wanted to have a little more flexibility in terms of my schedule. And one thing that's challenging about being a journalist and a writer is you're always responding to news. And so you're always you're on call off. in a yeah. way. And so yeah. when I, in 2017, I moved into a different role. I stepped down as managing editor and I moved into a role called editor at large, which mm-hmm. was more flexible and where I didn't quite write or edit as frequently. And then that worked well, I think for, for two years, but then at a certain point, I wanted to try something else. I think you reach a point where you feel, are you growing enough? Are you being challenged enough? Are you doing enough different things? And after a while, I think that above the law, we're going very well uh, because mm-hmm. I had built a team of uh, people and they were doing a great job running the site. And I no longer felt that I had to be the one to run it in order for it to survive or thrive. I felt mm-hmm. that I could turn it over and it was in good hands. So mm-hmm. I think that was also part of my calculus in deciding to move on. 
Got it. And how has this new journey been for you as a legal recruiter now? I really enjoy recruiting. It's great to Mm -hmm. talk to lawyers, whether associates or partners, about their careers. This was something I'd already been doing informally at Above Law, advising people about their careers. But now, in a way, I get to do it for a living. So that's been fun. It's been great to get to know law firms and work with them. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges is you do have a different relationship. To be totally honest, As a recruiter, in many ways, you're like a service provider. You're providing the law firms the service of helping them find talent. You're providing the candidates, the individual lawyers, the service of helping them find new opportunities. Mm -hmm. But as somebody in a service profession, you are in many ways dancing to the tune of law firm or, or candidate that you're serving. Whereas one thing that's nice about being a journalist is you really do have a lot of power, a lot of control. Uh, people are concerned about what you're going to write. People return your calls and emails very quickly. People want to persuade you or get your attention. Mm-hmm. Whereas as a recruiter, it's very different. We're always trying to get everyone's attention. We're the ones mm-hmm. who are sending a million emails to people or reaching out to law firms. It's a different relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that takes a little, some getting used to. What are some pieces of advice you give to young lawyers who are either in law school or just starting out their careers or even people who are thinking about entering this field, what are some things that you wish you had known? So I think the one thing that I often say is really, I urge people to focus on relationships. It's certainly important to have knowledge and to know legal doctrine and you wanna do well in law school and all of that. But at the end of the day, so much of this profession and success in it is based on relationships. And so I really tell people, get to know your classmates in law school, get to know your colleagues at the law firm, not just because it's going to make things more fun and you'll enjoy their company, but also just even on a purely instrumental level, uh, these are folks who can help you in the future and you'll be able to help them too. Uh, The legal profession is surprisingly small, even though there are more than a million lawyers, people just know each other, especially in in certain circles, mm-hmm. large law firms, AKA big law. It's a surprisingly small world. I think it really pays to focus on relationships. And then I guess the second thing I would say that it's important to focus on is just another R word, reputation, because it is a small world. If you're untrustworthy, uh, if you're not a hard worker, if you aren't ethical, that type of thing nice. gets around. Right. And you want to think of your career as a long-term thing. So even if something might benefit you in the short term, you want to think about how you can preserve your reputation over the long-term because over the long-term, that's going to give you much greater benefit. And how does one stay true to oneself throughout this long-term career? How would you advise somebody to check in with themselves like you've done throughout your career, to stay true to who you are, to really think through the next steps in terms of what would make you happy without all the noise in terms of what you quote-unquote should be doing? I think, first of all, careers are very much trial and error. You have to try different things and you won't really know until you try something. A lot of times when I talk to a candidate as a recruiter, they're scared of making a move. They think, what if I don't like the new firm? Or if they're changing practice areas, what if I don't like the new practice area? But a lot of times you don't really know until you try it. So you often have to try something new and see how it goes. When I left uh, the full-time practice of law to enter blogging and writing, There was a part of me that thought, you know what, let me try this for a couple of months and see how I like it. And if I don't like it, maybe I can try to come back. Mm -hmm. But as it turned out, I really did like it. I liked it actually even more than practicing law, which I already had liked. 
So a lot of times you just have to try something and you're not really going to know unless you try it. So I guess the other piece of advice I would say, in addition to just try new things is you need to have enough time and space to try new things. So for me, when I was at Walk to Lipton, great law firm, I was working very long hours and I just didn't have the time to do anything else really but work. Whereas when I moved to the US Attorney's Office, I did have more free time. And that's the free time that allowed me to take some writing classes and also start my blog. And so for a lot of the time, uh, I meet a lot of lawyers who either have a hobby or a business idea that's on the side. Oh, they are a really talented artist or they're also a writer, like working on a novel, like I wrote a novel a number of years ago, or maybe they have an idea for a business but they don't really get to pursue those things because they just don't have enough time. So one of the things that I think is important is if you have these other interests, maybe you don't, but if you do, you need to make time for them because the law firm, law firms are very demanding places. If you do good work, the reward is you get more work. So Mm -hmm. you do have to make some time and put it on a schedule, even if It's just when I was working on my novel, Supreme Ambitions, every Saturday and Sunday, I set aside a couple of hours in the morning to work on it because it was so hard to work on during the week. And I treated that like an appointment. So if somebody said, oh, do you want to meet up for brunch? I'd say, oh, no, I have something. You do have to have a certain amount of uh, discipline. So I would say try new things and make sure you have the time and energy and space to try new things. That's a great point. How long did that take you to write? It was something I'd been working on for a long time, but I would say that once I really started to focus on it, like I said, say devoting that time on Saturdays and Sundays, maybe it took me about a year and a half, but I had been working on it on and off over the years, but that was because I hadn't made the time for it. And how much time did you carve out those Saturdays and Sundays? And how did you keep yourself disciplined enough to just show up every day on that computer? Yeah, it was probably about two or three hours a day. day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I would write at other times too. Sometimes I would take a vacation and just try to focus on my writing. But you do need to set aside the time because otherwise it just, it won't get done. And I think also I'm a big believer in accountability. So when I was working on my novel, I was being a big procrastinator and I wasn't getting anything done. So I told my editor, John, okay, every Monday, I'm going to give you some pages. And I don't know necessarily whether they're going to be good and you don't have to read them right away. You can read them whenever, but I'm going to make a commitment to give you something. And that kind of forced me, it gave me accountability. I thought to myself, I need to do something, even if it's just a page or two, because I have to send something to John on Monday. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time when you have a goal, like create some accountability, maybe take your significant other, take a family member and say, okay, you know what? I want you to check in with me and make sure that I'm writing my novel or that I'm practicing my piano or that I'm exercising or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but it can really help to have some accountability. That's a great point. Yeah. What are some things that you do now to explore those creative juices? So for me, I think I'm really excited about my new publication, Original Jurisdiction. I try to write Mm -hmm. two to three times a week. So it's not like Above the Law, where we would write 10, 20 things a day, but I write fewer things, although I tend to write longer things. And I've been enjoying it. It just allows me to get back into the writing and reporting that I had missed a little bit as a recruiter. And I think This year, during the pandemic, a lot of us have been coming to realizations about ourselves. And for me, I realized that even though I enjoyed recruiting, I wanted to do more writing. And that was something that I learned about myself in 2020. And what does life look like for you 
2021. I, I do want to write another book. This time, I think a work of nonfiction. But also, I just want to focus on being there for our son, who's three and very active and uh, a lot of fun. And then also, I think the other thing is I'm trying to build back my health because as you alluded to earlier, I had a very bad bout with COVID earlier in 2020. And I was in the hospital for three weeks. I was on a ventilator for almost a week. And luckily I'm doing a lot better today, but it just, it's been a real struggle to try and get back into shape. Oh, wow. What has the recovery been like? I was in the hospital for much of March. I was discharged on April 1. And for about two months afterwards, I had continued to have bad symptoms. I had a terrible cough that made my whole upper body hurt, kept me up at night. I had shortness of breath. I would go up a flight of stairs where I would walk half a block and I would be panting. And I was very healthy before this. I used to run miles without a problem a long time ago. Admittedly, I completed the New York Marathon twice. So to go from someone in good health to somebody who had to use a wheelchair when I first got out of the hospital was really tough. But over time, things have gotten better. At some point in June, the cough and the shortness of breath went away. I had lost my voice because of the ventilator, the the thing they stick down your throat does damage to your vocal cords. So I had lost my voice. It took a couple of months to really fully get it back, but it did come back. So it's been a long road, but I feel very lucky because today I don't, other than not having much cardiovascular endurance still, I'm still working my way up to being able to jog or exercise do aerobic exercise for a decent period of time. I don't have, knock on wood, many of the other effects that many people do. I don't have heart problems or kidney problems Mm. or blood clots or anything like that. I consider myself very lucky. That's amazing. Yeah, I I can imagine an experience like that. It's a second chance of life, essentially. That's what my mother says to me. She says, you better make good use of it. Last question for you. For the next person who wants to be the next David Latt, what, what words of encouragement would you have for this person to become the whole person that he can be? I would guess I would just tell this person, really listen to yourself, figure out what it is that you get fulfillment from that really excites you and makes you feel like a whole person. And don't be overly swayed by external markers like prestige or money, because those things are in many ways transitory and they aren't going to make you feel like a complete person if you aren't doing something that you enjoy and and you find meaningful. And that can be a hard thing to do. And look, I totally understand people's realistic needs. People have loans to pay off. People have um, families to take care of. But really, to the extent that you can, try to listen to that voice inside yourself and pursue those things that really give you meaning and, and satisfaction. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jane.